0: listening to the Hearts Unleashed podcast, where we firmly believe that love is the answer and we are spreading it like wildfire. You're invited to come spend time with us in authentic connection, growth, reflection, and celebration. Life coach, author, and speaker, Abigail Gazda, will be sharing amazing humans, living their hearts unleashed to inspire you to do the same you will hear from men women and young people from all industries sharing their insights and inspiration as they have paved their way to their fullest lives here at the hearts unleashed podcast we are turning dreamers into doers so if you are ready to open your heart and take inspired action on your dreams you are in the perfect place with wonderful people here's your host dreamer educator, and adventurer, Abigail Gazda. All right, you guys, you are listening to the Hearts Unleashed
1: podcast where we are turning dreamers into doers. And to give you a little bit of background, this is the first guest interview of season three of the Hearts Unleashed podcast. And I am am too excited about it. This is someone very special that I'm happy to introduce to you. But also, this is something that has been literally months and years in the making. We have arrived at season three of the podcast. You guys have been listening from over 66 countries worldwide. We've maxed out. We're getting downloads all over the world. People are, you're sharing it, you're liking it, you're reviewing it. And I want to thank you. And I want to introduce to you guys someone who is very near and dear to my heart, Janae Kreitner, the founder, the CEO of Grandma's House and Grandma's House of Hope, if I said that correctly. Yes, Janae? We did. Awesome. And so she is a huge unleashed heart in this world, making a massive difference in thousands of people's lives, shifting millions of dollars towards effective use to help alleviate the homelessness crisis and drug addiction and all of these different things. And so um, before I tell her whole story in her intro, I am just going to introduce her to you. So welcome, Janae. Thank you so much for being here today.
2: Well, thank you so much, Abigail, for having me. I love the whole premise of Hearts Unleashed because I think we all just took a step in that direction. It, It would be amazing to see what the world could do and how it could change.
1: Oh my gosh, yes, yes. And that is exactly why we're doing what we're doing is to continue to unleash people's hearts. And so tell us a little bit about your Unleashed heart. Well, goodness. Um,
2: you know, the, the story begins long, long ago with some early childhood trauma that led me years later to become homeless myself 26 years ago. Um, and so Grandma's House of Hope uh, was an effort to give back to the community that supported me as I got my life back together and my feet back under me. And and I learned to heal my heart so that I could participate in the, hearts and the healing of, of other women that I would encounter later on in life. Um, so we're a nonprofit charity, and we serve individuals experiencing homelessness. Um, and uniquely, we look for targeted, focused groups of the homeless um, who are looked over or not thought of when you think of you know your your image that pops to mind in your head about you know what is what does a person experiencing homelessness look like? So, and that's led us to some really special populations, including women homeless. With Breast cancer and seniors with disabilities, uh, human trafficking survivors, women in their last month of pregnancy, um, reunification services for moms who really should be in a family program but can't get there unless yeah. they live, so more of the children can, can visit them. In addition, wow. we have a hunger uh, relief program called Nana's Kids that serves uh, children who are living in motels who access the school cafeteria as their primary source of food. Um, but then may go at, without eating over the weekends and during the holiday months when the cafeteria is closed.
0: Huh.
2: Surpassed over 3 million meals to these families living in motels or unstably housed. Um, and our third program is called HopeWorks Education and Enrichment Center, where we are um, serving at-risk youth in a you know, very um, low-income housing complex in a neighborhood where gangs are prevalent. Um, and we help these kids with after-school programming. We help the uh, family members with adult education. And we've seen um, over half of our families attend college for the very first time in their generation, wow. um, in their family's generations. So um, I, I love working with these people because everybody's got their own individual and very personal story. And what matters to us is to be intentional about listening to those stories and not categorizing people or or thinking of them in groups right so oh. yeah. when i was homeless i felt my my story was very complicated and i felt like nobody really wanted to listen to the whole thing you know they wanted to cut me off or they wanted to fix me or do this and you know so much of what we do in our trauma informed care model is to help women recover from their trauma and really get the time they need um, to heal from the inside out
1: yes yes and you know just first off just thank you for sharing because what you're doing in the world is making such a massive difference and I really like you were speaking to stereotypes and categorizing people based on like that that stereotypical image of homelessness which is like a, a bum out on the street begging and and it's so not that there are so many different images or aspects to homelessness and you know when you were sharing it, it took me right back to a time when i was teaching and i had this young sixth grade boy come in and tell me out of like in an embarrassed kind of way that his family was living in a tent uh that month and and that he you know they were homeless and it just blew my mind because people who seem like just because they're not either dirty or hungry per se, or carrying tons of bags that they're not going through a hardship that would put them in that category of actually experiencing homelessness. And so thank you for starting this conversation by broadening our perspective of what that actually looks like. Absolutely.
2: And, And actually our mission statement is to empower the invisible. So yes, what you just said, like, when you're walking down the street you, and, you know, you may be sleeping in your car, nobody around you knows it, but when they do know that about you, they start to perceive you differently. You know, yeah. when I became homeless, uh, you know, on it was January 24th, actually, gosh, that's tomorrow, isn't it? January 24th, ah. 1994, uh, um, I was abandoned at the side of the road with my seven-year-old and right outside of Disneyland, where we could see the fireworks from across the street. basically cowered in a telephone booth because they still had them back in those days. And, you know, when somebody walked by and took a look at me and my son in there, there was nothing but either pity or disdain in the looks that I was getting. And it was interesting to me that the person who helped me was a prostitute um, who was working that area at the time. And she offered my son and I a place to stay that night um, because people... And bang, angrily on the walls of the, um, the phone. and she saw, she saw me, and yeah. I think everybody else that was walking by just saw something, you know, yeah, something going on, but not really seeing the individuals in mind. And and I'm sure neither none of those people would imagine that here, 26 years later, I'd be um, doing what I'm doing and running, uh, you know, a charity that has, you know, we we'll up at 56 employees, you know, this year, 40% yeah. of them have been homeless themselves in their past. And yeah. um, and my son, that little boy in the, you know, the phone booth is a police officer now, and he's in the Army uh, Reserves, and he plays a real mean bagpipe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that.
2: <laughs> no joke. He uh, he actually competed in Scotland when he was 18 and was placed fourth in the world. Wow. Like, Glad he wasn't practicing the bagpipes in the phone booth, but.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that that's such a great perspective, too. Is we think that because you've been down some path, down one type of path, that it kind of uh, dictates the rest of your life. And it's, it couldn't be further from the truth. What do you have to say about that?
2: Well, I mean, that's very true. I mean, before I became homeless, I you know was director of business affairs at Wilhelmina Artists. I'd been in the entertainment industry for over 15 years. Got my equity card at the American Conservatory Theater up in San Francisco and had a very successful career. Um, and then one day I was performing in a show, ironically called Homeless, a street opera. And oh, wow. show, because the part I was playing was a mirror of my childhood was lurking below the surface of, you know, my cognitive mind. Yeah. So we shared some things in common, the, the part of of Tess and myself. We had both been very small when we were molested for the first time. You know, dad was the abuser, mom looked the other way, and uh and other than the fact that we were socioeconomically so different, our stories were very similar. And so when the show closed, a family member took me out to breakfast and shared with me what that play and me in that part had brought up for him who had he'd also been a, um, a victim of the same abuse. Everything started to click into place. And it was like that, you know, seeing a movie where like you start to see a film roll in the back of your head and like, Oh, that that's not right. And these dark things started to come out and it, I didn't have the support I needed from my family. Uh, to get through that. In fact, they were the ones that wanted me to go away and become invisible and not talk about it because it it happened, quote unquote, so long ago. Why couldn't I just get over it and move on? You know, from my perspective, I was just experiencing the trauma all over again because these memories were new to me. Yeah. So that led me, you know, through a divorce and um, lost my job at Wilhelmina Artists. I had a little pet sitting business on the side and a man who came into my life, who I swear could see a target on my back, uh, convinced me to sell that business, give him all the money, and go with him to Utah to start a club. And you know, the minute he got me there, he isolated me. And it became very quickly a domestic violence situation that you know I was in and out of for the next three years. And he's the one who was by the side of the road. So you wouldn't that person in the in the phone booth. You would never have associated that person with somebody you know, whining and dining with some of the major talent in Hollywood, you know, models mm-hmm. and actors to what they saw in front of them.
1: Wow. Wow. Judge a book by their cover. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, and just in you sharing that, it's kind of funny because your story never gets old to me, Janae. I, I got so <laughs> her, a little bit of background for our listeners is I was, I had the complete blessing of helping Janae write and share her book with the world, which we will talk about. But I'm sitting here with the same goosebumps as the first time you've ever told me some of those stories. And I'm just so honored that our listeners do get to hear because you are just absolutely breaking down all the stereotypes around what we think can lead to homelessness or what it looks like for the rest of life and what that means about that person. And I love that you said... That prostitute saw you and not saw a bum or a a mom, you know, a a mom failing or like just whatever they thought that they saw, but she saw you and opened up her home to you that began Mm -hmm. to shift it.
2: Yeah. mm
1: Yeah.
2: one general little random act of kindness, you'd be amazed how far it goes. I'm sure she's forgotten completely all about me, but... You know, she will always be my rescuer in my mind. And as well as one day pulled to the side of the road when um, this is a few months later, um, I had been able to um, get myself a car, which my my son and I were sort of living and sleeping in. And I had run out of gas um, on the way to pick him up from school. And I literally was just at the end of my rope. I knew we didn't have a place to sleep that night. I got out of my car. I sat on the green belt right next to my car and I was just crying. And this man pulls over and, you know, asks me what's going on. I says, I just, I have no money. I can't put gas in my car. I can't get my son. I can't be late. And not only did that man go get gas and bring it back and put it in my car, but he handed me a $20 bill Mm -hmm. And, and I knew he saw me. And again, I probably never thought about me again, you know, it was just like something he felt compelled to do. But I will tell that story and tell my dying day that this uh-huh. man just, you know, like, give me a dollar and say, well, maybe this will help. But I mean, went those extra steps to say, I see you, a woman in trouble, and I'm going to take some steps and move out of my comfort zone to help you.
1: Yeah, I, I love it so much, and you're you have so many beautiful stories of God or divine intervention uh, saving your butt, and I I love that part so much. But you know, you mentioned something when you were telling your story about how you were you were so accomplished, so educated, you had made it through so far in life, and one thing that play and being in that role activated so many repressed memories for you Mm -hmm. that sent you into this spiral. And I really wanted to highlight that because I imagine there are a lot of our listeners in the world who deal with this, but don't know what to do with it when they're, you know, seemingly all right. And something for me, that was divorced, but something in their own life activates all those repressed memories. And now that you're, all the way through the experience, what would you like to say to somebody who's currently being activated by their repressed memories?
2: Oh boy, find someone that you can talk to that is not going to try to fix you. Mm. A lot of this is about process and the person who will let you tell your story without interrupting or putting their, like, spin on it or whatnot. It's such a gift to be listened to actively.
1: Mm. uh,
2: You know, that's what broke my heart when um, I met my husband. um, You know, was said, here's this stranger who came walking up to me, you know, in a park one day when I really didn't want to be bothered. And, you know, he was just insistent on flirting with me. And I knew Mm -hmm look in his eye and he came up and here I am a woman sitting in the park I'm reading a book called Bad Love <laughs> and <laughs> there's irony in all this right so you know he comes up and he says hey I got a case of that book back at my place and I'm like oh yeah sure and show me your sketches and I think I flipped him a, a very unladylike um, gesture and there was more some- language involved and the man looked so surprised by my you know immediate and aggressive reaction he just like took two steps back and he said look lady I'm sorry I I work at the Convention Center I just did a book show I I swear to you I have a case of that book signed by the author back at my place I was just making conversation and he <sighs> was surprised that he just like made me laugh and he disarmed me and he sat down on that bench next to me and I found myself telling him my whole story. Like, remember, this is after three years of, you know, domestic violence, abuse on top of the trauma that I had experienced. And I'm talking to a complete stranger. And I I mean, I I can I can be talkative when I want to (laughs) be. Yeah, yeah. and i just i think i probably talked for 45 minutes without him ever saying a word but i knew he was with me and listening and and he never told he never told me what to do with it he just let me out and like he went his way and i went back to my motel room that night um, i tried very hard to have a motel for my son and i over the weekends even if we had to sleep in the car during the week and uh, you know, next morning, eleven o'clock in the morning, I heard a big you know, knock on the door, and of course, I figure it's the front desk telling me to get out because I never left before they told me to do that. Because why would I? Mm-hmm. I can't scrape a couple extra hours out of this. I'm going to do it. And uh, I opened the door, and here's this man standing at the door. I don't even know. He must have followed me or something, which you know, could have seemed kind of creepy. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. He looks me right in the eye, and he said, "Janae." You don't belong out here," he said. Look, "I live in a converted garage apartment with, you know, like a tiny little bedroom and a living room and a kitchen." He said, "I will move out of my bedroom and you and your son can have my bedroom. I'll sleep on the couch in the living room and use some time to get back on your feet." And you know, I I had men proposed to put me up, you know, uh, before while I was living on the street, but there's something about this man that just seemed worse pursuing. And yeah, I figured what the heck life is pretty crappy right now. This can't be any worse than any of the other situations I've gotten myself into. Yeah. So true to his word, he moved out of his bedroom, tiny little twin bed in his room. And I slept in the twin bed. My son slept in the sleeping bag at the foot of the bed. And he just waited for me to heal. And it three years. I put that man through chaos for three solid years before I understood and believed and trusted that he was offering me unconditional love. And that's um, in my life I ever experienced it. It led me to um, down a path to accept Jesus Christ as my savior. And the world turned around from that point forward.
1: Yeah. You know, we got to talk about that. <laughs> and what I'd love uh, how many people in the world are blocking love because they're scared, they don't trust, they've been burned before and wh- what did it what did it truly take you to shift and be able to accept that unconditional love?
2: You know when I say I put that man through chaos, I'm not kidding. I mean, I I stole from him. I you know, there's a whole list, a laundry list of things that I did to just, you know, push him away and give him a reason to kick me out because I knew he would eventually kick me out. I would become, you know, no more of the, sh- you know, no longer the shiny thing. And he would, you know, he kicked me and my son out. I just knew it would happen. So I wanted it to be because of something I did and not because of someone who I who I was, right? Okay. Because that was just too hard to take. So I kept trying to give him reasons to throw me out. And, and he just wouldn't bite. He just <laughs> was patient. And he said, look, I know what you're doing. I'm not going to bite. Like, I'm here to support you. I love you. And when you're ready to love me back, I'm going to be right here. Wow. So, yeah. We actually ended up. Uh, ended up getting pregnant. And we lost that baby and um and that was my breaking point because i realized when i lost that child i realized how much i wanted to have a family with him Mm. that's when the shift happened and we began to try intentionally to get pregnant again and we're successful um we had our youngest child together jennifer and um and yeah we're still together and Jennifer's uh, actually running one of my programs here at Grandma's House of Hope. She's a really wow. beautiful, wonderful girl. And Jeremy is doing really well on his own as well. And we're foster parents. So we've had I think, eight additional children come through our home and wow. you know, God is good and big. And he says that, you know, he will, when you've lost everything, he will bring it back to you a hundredfold. And yeah. I, I'm here to testify that, that when you accept him into your life, like, that can really happen like from having nothing but a couple of things in a suitcase um to having you know a, a beautiful home and a, a you know a place to retreat to up in the mountains and and this kind of family support and and being able to you know get up and go to quote-unquote work every day which never feels like work and only feels like a calling and to really feel like I'm I'm operating in my purpose you mm. know and, there's, there's just nothing better than that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and speaking of, tell us a little bit about Grandma's House of Hope and the development of it, because it's all, it's all kind of rolled into one.
2: Right, right. So um, part of my recovery was getting to a place, and, and also my, uh, you know, my getting saved, was that forgiveness had a big role in how I would move forward and heal. And I had forgiven my father. He actually passed away on father's day when I was 14 and I had other people in my life I needed to forgive, but my mom was the hardest, um, because she had turned her back on me and she hadn't protected me. And, and even in, when I called her from that phone booth that day, um, on January 24th, 1994, you know, all she could talk about, you know, I was like, Hey, I'm here in a phone booth, like with, with Jeremy, you know, come get me. And she Wouldn't you know she talked about there being that Northridge quake had just happened and you know that she couldn't possibly come and get me? And I just like hung up the phone that day, bewildered and and really held some uh um I I held some I harbored bad feelings against my mom at that point. She she actually turned me away from her doorstep and refused to give me a pillow to sleep with in the car. Like I couldn't understand her behavior. Well, come to find out, you know, my mom was uh, experiencing early onset Alzheimer's during hmm. that. Time. And so after I got saved and I, I went to look for her so I could forgive her, I found her in this nurse My step family had put her in and kind of walked away. And here she was 72 years old, curled up in a fetal position, eating from a tube in her stomach and rocking and weeping. That was uh, like, I was like, it was just like watching somebody just wallowing in this despair and I used to up and sing to her um, with kids on the train and she used to love the old Gershwin stuff so I was up singing to her one afternoon the song um, Someone to Watch Over Me Uh and I hit that line in the song that says someone to watch over me my mom opens her eyes she comes into the room and looks at me and speaks one word and she says God I just like that, and it took me by such surprise, because I hadn't grown up in a household where God was talked about. There was a Bible in the foyer, but nobody really looked at it or read from it. It was just there. Mm. And so to hear her call out for the Lord in that way, I went home to my saint of a husband that night and said, Hey, you know, I want to bring Mom home and take care of her. How do you feel about that? Mm. He never blinked an eye. He said, Of course we will. Yeah. So we'll fact, you know, six weeks later, you know, I had found this home for rent in, in uh, Garden Grove, California, and it was one story. So my mom could, you know, be in a wheelchair and went out in the house, and we brought her home. And within six weeks after we got her there, she was eating a full-on Thanksgiving meal at the dining room table without help. Wow. It was miraculous what happened. And even though we never knew who I was and we couldn't go to that forgiveness conversation, it actually was a beautiful way of God letting me like leave the baggage at the curb and just love my mother and and so when she passed away and we had this uh empty bedroom I decided to help this lady that I had been befriended at a bus stop named Harriet and Harriet was also an older woman I think she was 78 or 79 and and she was uh homeless experiencing homelessness and we brought her in, and we took care of her. We put her in mom's old bedroom, and it uh, took us about six months to find her a place to live that she could afford with her income. And after she left, we brought in a family with a couple of kids that were experiencing homelessness. We got them all settled. And, you know, eventually one day, we we're kind of counting our, like, our family. There was like one, two, three, four of us at the time, and we started counting everybody else living with us in the house, and they outnumbered us. So... Uh. Um, I looked at my husband, and I said, yeah, I think it's time for us to get out of the way. What do you think? And he, yeah. he said, yeah, I think you're right. So that became our first shelter. And uh, we ended up putting uh, uh, 10 beds in there. So we served 10 women. Um, it was 2004. And we sort of felt our way through the process of, you know, how do we go about helping people in a more intentional and, and specific way and build the program? Well, I took uh, full-time jobs with other nonprofits to kind of lear- learn, the curve. So I worked at second harvest food bank. I did some international relief work and then worked for the orange County rescue mission as a case manager. And in 2007, we became a nonprofit ourselves. I quit my job and went full-time into grandma's house of hope. Um, wow. So for the, Oh, since 2007 um, from one shelter, we now have 14 with three new ones on the way so current, we'll be at 190 beds total in a in our program for grandma's house um is wow. to also include
1: gentlemen we have a grandpa's house now
2: and yeah. then the other programs nana's kids and and hope works
1: wow i just i want to acknowledge you because i i love the work that you're doing in the world and i had such the blessing of an opportunity to come observe that i i what were the meetings called what are those evening meetings okay. They're just called house meetings but I think yeah. what the warm and fuzzies, right? Yeah, it's like all of it. So uh, Janae actually took me on a a little mini tour. We, I think we went to like four or five different houses, house meetings, and I got to meet some of the uh, women that she supports. And then also her staff who just pours their heart into the work that they do and creating genuinely beautiful homes where, uh, and great environments and healthy conversations. And it's just so, so amazing to witness what has come and, uh, best, Especially only meeting you in the capacity to help you write your book, your story is so compelling. And so then to get to actually submerge myself in the environment that you've created and the community that you've created, is, it's just astonishing. So I just really want to take this moment to acknowledge you and your growth and your process. Oh, thank you, Abigail. Yeah. And so, I. (laughs) oh, thank you so much. And I'd love for you to tell everybody a little bit more about your book because your story is so thorough and just where we can find out more about you and and get to know you even more. Um, Well, the book is called Resurrecting Hope, Overcoming the Invisible Violence of
2: Child Abuse. Um, and it is available on Amazon.com. So you can look it up by my name, um, Janine Kleitner, or by the book title Resurrecting Hope. Um, there are a couple of books called Resurrecting Hope. So we are not the ones with the uh, bare chested men on the front
1: cover. <laughs> <laughs> bear, bear, bear. <laughs> And You know what? We'll be sure to uh, link it in the the show notes as well. So that way people will be able to find it pretty easily too. Awesome.
2: Thank you. You could also um, contact us directly at grandma's house of hope.org and request a book and make a donation of any size and we'll send one to you a signed copy for free. So um, uh, please, well, not for free. It's a for a donation of any size. Well, I'll sign a book directly to you and, and mail it off to you.
1: That's great. And if, if, um, because your story and your mission is so moving, and I know that you raise money to continue to support people. So donations are great. And how else can people get involved from wherever they're listening?
2: Um, Certainly through volunteering. If you happen to be near Orange County, California, um, we work with uh, over 3000 volunteers every year and and we rely on that help so much, or perhaps you're remote and you have a skill that you could help us with, like, you know, cleaning up our website or offering, you know, some advice or consulting in, in a certain way with the organization. Um, you know, it would bless my heart if more people like started their own programs and,
1: you know, yeah.
2: were living and, and if I can be a part of assisting somebody and getting their own, like Nana's kids program up and running mm-hmm. or, um, or their own grandma's house shelter program. So, um, yeah. And pray for us, you know, certainly, you know, prayers are very powerful. And, um, and I can't look at what we've done here at grandma's house and not see the big picture of the fact that, you know, it's all God. Um, I, myself would never imagine that I could run a, you know, $6 million organization, um, Mm -hmm. That was never what I tried to do is something that happened because we were doing, you know, the county started coming after us and offering us uh, financial support to run more programs and work with um, specifically with uh, persons who were homeless with mental health disabilities and um, some of the other um, work that we do with reentry from, you know, jails and prisons and just people who need a restart and a reboot and somebody to listen yeah. mm-hmm trauma-informed way.
1: Yeah, beautiful. beautiful. You gave everybody plenty of resources. I love that. <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> I'm very much like you in the way that much of the, my own business was built off of being somewhat of an understudy uh being active in another business or helping other people start something so definitely getting involved in the industry that you're interested in in developing in is such a great tool for anybody living their heart unleashed and so I just want to wrap this up by acknowledging you and thanking you for being here and sharing your your journey your transformation and your unleashed heart and then obviously I hear so much how you give the glory to God and it's really beautiful to um, incorporate that because it's it's reading your book, it's so beautiful to listen to all the divine intervention that has taken place in the way that we can't possibly predict where the heck we're going mm-hmm. <laughs> and being open to receiving the blessings and the guidance. And And you are such a beacon of hope in that sense. And so just thank you for radiating your light.
2: Well, thank you. I always say it's not what happens to you that defines you, but how you respond to it. Totally. That's a that would be the message I'd want to leave with your listeners and thank you, Abigail, for taking the time and thinking of me our first um season three interview i'm I'm very honored, and to your listeners, I could not have gotten past the stuck point in telling my story without Abigail. Mm. I got to the book, you know writing the book brought up new memories I hadn't even had before and and I shied away from finishing it, and it was Abigail that gave me the restart to, you know, pour the rest of the story out. So I will be forever indebted to you, my dear, for um, helping me complete something that um, I really feel that God led me to do.
1: Mm, and it is a complete honor. So thank you for trusting me with that your story and your experience, because um, unearthing some of that stuff for any of us can be so challenging and confronting and can really stop us from going for it. But your message is one that needs to be told. And and so many others are out there keeping stuff locked up in the chambers of their heart. And so you're just such a bold example of what it looks like to to persist even in the face of the challenge. And so you, you've taken on that challenge so well. So it's been such an honor to support your process. Well, thank you. Thank you. And thank you, listeners. Thank you for being here. Thank you for continuing to turn into the Hearts Unleashed podcast because we are truly unleashing hearts and turning dreamers into doers. Thanks for being here.